This is Daniel Figella, and you're listening to episode four of our eight-part series on AI futures here on the AI and Business Podcast. This special Saturday series is intended to give you different lenses into the long-term consequences of AI, and this particular series is focused on the future of the human experience. What will day-to-day life and day-to-day business be like as AI becomes astronomically more powerful and more widespread? Today, we talk about an interesting intersection of artificial intelligence and many of our day-to-day lives, and that is in the world of gaming. Our guest this week is Professor Julian Tegelius. He teaches computer science and engineering at New York University, and he holds a PhD in computer science from the University of Essex. Julian's focus is the intersection of AI and gaming. He's also co-founder of Modal.ai, a 20-something person firm based in Denmark, Focus on developing AI-based tools for game development. I'm not much of a video game person myself, but I do think that it's an interesting intersection where the virtual and the real collide, where emotions fly, where people feel a sense of accomplishment and achievement, and where technology's bounds are pushed. There's no denying that many of the most popular video games of the last 15 years often kind of set the pace for other games to come and other kinds of digital engagement. And Julian opens up some of his ideas about where gaming and artificial intelligence might crisscross into day-to-day human life, not just for the folks who are gamers, but for those of us who are not. How might the VR environments and augmented reality environments that are enhanced by artificial intelligence gamify the way that we live normally? What are the ways that that might change our lives radically? And what are the elements of our lives that even a decade or two decades out uh, might not be all that altered by these technologies? Julian has perspectives on both sides of the fence, and he paints a compelling picture as to how these technologies might affect the way that we live. So like all the rest of the episodes in this series, this is certainly different than our artificial intelligence business use cases and kind of ROI and strategy insights focus. This Saturday series, again, is is about giving you a lens into the long term and sort of asking the questions, what are we turning into? So if you're interested in affecting policy or regulation around artificial intelligence, if you're interested in the kind of world we're building for the next generation, or if you're just interested in how users or businesses might be leveraging technologies farther into the future, not just two or three years, but maybe 10 or 20 years, hopefully this series will be helpful for you. And I certainly felt that way about Julian's episode. So without further ado, let's fly into this episode three of eight in our AI Futures Saturday series. This is Professor Julian Tegelius here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Julian, I wanted to kick us off on the topic of being pulled into virtual worlds. You've been in the gaming space for a long time, and they crisscross with artificial intelligence. But you're also watching us. You were in the coronavirus era here. Everybody's working online now. VR is starting to develop from where where it was when we first talked. When you think about the forces pulling us to exist more and more in virtual spaces and work and personal life, what are those for you? Technologies, trends, whatever. I mean, it's more fun. The virtual spaces are more fun. They are better designed. Who was it? Jane McGonigal who said that uh, title of one of her books, Reality is Broken. Uh, It is true that from a game design perspective, um, most of the non-game, non-designed reality is kind of badly designed. It's... uh, there's a whole subreddit, which is called, I think, slash R slash outside, where they basically, it's basically one big running gag about our human existence in real life as a game. And people complain about the tutorials and the glitches and all kinds of oh, things. Oh, this is and, hilarious. Yeah, it is hilarious. Wow. So it, 
it's really fun to it's really it's really fun to read, but it's like there's something deeper to it, you know. So one thing that pulls us into the virtual world is the designed experience, and I think you know I'm going to get back to that question more, but I'm going to start. Well, I already started, but I'm going to sidestep it in a weird way because I think that what we're doing is also that we're making the real world more like games. You know, every generation, you know, they're born. They grow up slash get indoctrinated or whatever, and you know become cult- assimilated, cultured into a lot of cultural tropes and memes and thoughts and the zeitgeist or whatever. And one thing, and, and for every generation, you see how that affects how we build our society. And now a society is largely run by people who grew up playing games, and soon even more. Soon, like, you know, everybody in power almost will have a substantial game-playing experience. We're moving into that we're making the real, real world more like games. There's a, world, there's a word which I hate. Um, it's gamification. Okay, go on. Um, Why is that? Ian Bogost has a very nice little short article where he says that gamification is bullshit. It's basically, basically, it doesn't mean shit. And it is, it's crazily misused. And like, you know... An airline loyalty program is gamification. Yes, in an extremely trivial sense, like, yes, we have some kind of reward design. But in games, there's so much more in terms of experience design, in terms of not only what you're rewarded for, but which affordances you're getting all the time, and uh, the pacing, and the sort of the um, opportunities for interaction with others and with the world and so on, that I think we're learning from, consciously or unconsciously, and pulling this into the real world. Yeah, man, there's so much to pry open with just that idea. So you're, you're not talking about even necessarily, you know, a technology or set of technologies. You're talking about this is the zeitgeist notion that more people are familiar with gaming, more people spend more time gaming, more people running companies or, you know, might even be in the future involved in government in different ways are familiar with and, and maybe involved in gaming. And that the idea of designing experiences and rewards, you use both of those terms, designing experiences and designing yeah. rewards, that this is becoming sort of layered onto how we live life. You know, you mentioned airlines, not the best example. What are no, some good examples? Talk, talk to us about where this is eking its way in. Where do you see this? Because I think some people are going to hear this and say, no, not for me, Julian, no way, right? <laughs> That's good. I'm not sure I have good examples yet. I, I can only think of where I see their absence. Driving a car, where is uh, driving a real car so sort of, sensorially and experientially impoverished compared to like driving Grand Theft Auto. And I'm not saying like we should kill people. No, we should probably try to not kill people. That seems like a good, you know, probably try to put put in safeguards so you don't kill people. But there's a lot of like this experience design you could um, could put into that. Or like, you know, supermarkets or something like this. Supermarkets actually are well-designed. And that's an old sort of, you know, most supermarkets are well designed. That's an old art that's been around since, like you know, for at least half a century or so. Yeah, like, yeah. But that's in the physical yet. world, of course. That's not necessarily yeah. pulling us in yeah. by itself. Yeah, yeah. So the big question is: in which ways are this? Is a sort of you know the um, um, sharp? In which ways are, is the sharp demarcation between the physical and virtual world going to crumble? People are talking about ARGs. Um, and people are talking about like so uh, alternate reality games. People are talking about like uh, augmented reality in various ways. We've seen few real successes, and and those that are real successes, like Pokemon Go, are sort of very limited in the reaction in in in, in the sort of you know 
how they interact with the real world. And then there are other ones that basically just uses a gimmick, like, hey, wave your hand to do this. Um, I'm thinking, and I don't have a clear answer about this, but how is it all going to come together? Because I think we want it to come together. Not that you or I specifically sit and sort of scheme about how we're going to raise the border between virtual and digital. But I think we as a culture is trying to make that border go away because we're... We grew up playing games and we grew up and, and then we got into the real world. We frustrated with how badly the real world interacts with us. And then we frustrated about how we cannot easily make it more game. So that's why we need to sort of, we're going to want to even more erase that border. I, I can think of some anecdotal ideas here of what I think you're talking about. So if we, if we think about areas of frustration that might be chipped away on, you know, you're talking augmented reality. I don't know if this ties well into gaming design in some way, but maybe there would be some, you know, we know what we're going to buy when we go into the supermarket. I mean, we talk about entering a virtual world. I haven't gone into a physical supermarket unless it was like on a date and we're going to like make a meal or something, right? I haven't done that in like nine years. So, you know, I'm just ordering stuff on the internet and it all comes to your door and then, you know, whatever, you just move it to the refrigerator. So that's going in. But maybe when people go to these physical places, let's say they know their hit list of what they're going to buy, there might be some sort of series of prompts that sort of like highlight the path you're going to walk on to like grab all your stuff quickly, or like a notification that says, hey, they ran out of the kind of crackers you normally get with cheese, you get it every time. But like, you know, here's where you can go for the next best thing. And so it's just, instead of thinking you, you just be presented with an optimal path. Maybe it makes it more fun, definitely makes it more efficient. You don't have to wonder, like, is this, is this kind of where you're going? That's, um, um, that's part of it. There might be other things. There might be little challenges that you are set, that others have set. Maybe, like, you're la- leaving little notes um, to others. You know, we're talking about reusing Google Maps, or we're talking about if you played any of the Bloodborne or Dark Souls games where players leave little notes um, basically in various cryptical ways informing and warning them against this and features of the environment or giving each other tips which is very fascinating and, and in an area of like a lot of creativity actually so you want to sort of build layers on top of this like where people have built up like hey you should try this or you should um, you should go for that now another force um sorry for jumping back to your video question another force for um, which is um, bringing us into the digital is maybe not ourselves as consumers and as like humans existing in virtue of being per, um, on, on a person's base, but it's everybody's, in particular, everybody who wants to do something with AI's hunger for training data. And of course, we want a lot of training data. Uh, we have finally woken up to the need for regulating um, data access in various ways. And this is being done in various ways, um, often clumsily. And uh, as it always is, regulation is always like behind technology because by, by, by its very nature, you know, it's like, yeah. now how can we get training data in a simpler way? Um, and we know that, for example, Tesla, they save away lots of data and train on it as is, is reasonable, but you know they are selling cars. It's a fantastic way of collecting training data. For everything else you want to do, where are you going to get data? Well, the more virtual the activity is, the more um, you can, the more data you can collect, and, and and vice versa. So that's another one of the big forces that pulling us into the virtual, not because we want it, but you know, if you are a company and you can provide a service or good in such a way. Everything else being equal, if you can provide it in such a way that you can collect data or that you can not, not collect data, of course, you're going to provide it in such a way that you can collect data. So in a virtual form. 
Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm thinking about practically. So we're talking about, for those people listening in, and Julian, tell me if I'm wrong here, we're talking about being able to build some level of data dominance within a domain. So if, if you, you know, if you're Tesla and you have more miles on more cars that you're training your autonomous vehicles on, they're going to be better at autonomous driving than the competition. And that's one more reason why Tesla might get a better valuation or sell more cars or have a better reputation for safety, potentially, etc. So the idea is, can we do this in other, other spaces? I'm thinking about non-virtualized stuff here Julian, obviously Amazon's a great example, right? Amazon knows what I'm going to buy for my groceries because it's going to suggest the stuff I've already bought, but it'll also suggest related stuff that people like me have bought. And they're often quite good, those recommendations. So, you know, that maybe that's like some, you know, they're collecting a lot of data. They're able to make my experience better and they're able to sell me more stuff and keep me as a customer because of it. I'm thinking where else this fits in. I mean, I really, you know, like I'm wondering like, okay, well, eventually maybe if we do sales training, if more and more salespeople are selling in virtual environments or like 3D environments, then we can look at everything second by second, not just voice recordings. We can look at everything second by second in terms of posture and background and whatever and find all these corollary factors to help people get better at selling and to give them really personalized feedback and to train people to a greater competence at a faster rate. This is an extrapolated example, by the way, and, and that, that's Frankly, that's a lot of factors to train on. I don't know if that's a viable thing right now. We could probably do something with that, but in the future we could. Is that an example of what you're talking about? Things that are happening physically that when they happen digitally, we're going to be able to develop better products, deliver more value. What are other good ones like that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, for various reasons, the people who deliver it will want everything measured and so they get data they can train on at in as much resolution as you can and. The only way to get like you know completely high resolution data on everything is just it happens virtually, and that's a driver for virtualization. Now, I mean, one I think we're both right now when we sort of grasping for examples in our minds, um, maybe committing the error of thinking about the physical transactions that take place right now and the physical things we do in the world right now, and thinking how we're going to gamify, sorry for the word, or virtualize it. Whereas I think in the future it'll be much more, um, many more things taken the other way around. Because basically we're looking at things that are happening virtually and how can you make that whatever is happening virtually replace something that's physical or like, you know, have a physical footprint perhaps, but the core of the process is virtual. And I'm thinking that that is probably, I mean, that's, that's another example of people who grew up on games are going to rule the world and are going to think about like, why are things not like games? Can we make it like games? Oh, yes, but there is also a physical problem we need to solve that we tack something on there. I don't know exactly what would be a good example of this at that point. I feel like there's boring examples that we're, I mean, we're just leaving out because they're too obvious for us to address them. But it feels like something like online dating, for example, which especially oh, yeah. in the coronavirus era, it's like, well, that, that was a physical thing, man. You used to have to go to a Starbucks and, and walk up to somebody, you know, or... or or go to a bar or something, you know, it's not really my thing. But now they're working on creating recommendations for the kinds of people that you want to meet with certain criteria within a certain, you know, range or, you know, uh, geographic space or, you know, certain kinds of, you know, do they want children or something? I mean, they're, they're sort of saying, well, meeting people is awful bumbly. How can we virtualize this and make it more efficient and make it better than the physical world? Boom. You know, Amazon is doing that for, for buying things. Those do feel like examples that more things like what those are are going to happen with things that we don't oh, right. yeah, oh, think about right now. Yeah. And, and, and then you sort of, so, so there's a problem for you if you're running a dating site. So people, 
either can't or don't want to fill in the right information or they don't do it truthfully and so on. Now, dating size is an interesting thing because most people want to keep some kind of watertight um, uh, sort of, um, what do you call it, walls between the rest of their online presence and their dating yes, presence. Yes, yes, yes. For a number of reasons. However, if you would allow yourself to do that, there's lots of like things we do virtually where we, where we actually can extract lots of interesting data from. And not only is social network activity. So that's, that's something I, when, when I talk about, obviously I think a lot about games and talk a lot about games. So we have shown, others have shown that you can learn a lot about someone's um, personality, uh, skills, and you know, also make good predictions about like age, gender, and stuff like this from how they play games. Uh, depending on which game, you can learn different things. But you know, the, from the obvious things like older people have slower reactions and uh, stuff like this. In general, there's always outliers. Like with any, with any model, you know, there's going to be. But but you use machine learning and a lot of data from someone playing the division, and you can figure out not only like you know the general skills and uh, something about rage and cognitive flexibility maybe, but also about. Um, what kind of interactions they prefer, and this can be correlated to personality. And then if you, if you look at a highly expressive game, such as Minecraft, the beauty of Minecraft is that um, there is actually a mission structure, but uh, no one really cares, or some, some people care, but most people don't care as much. And you can sort of express yourself in the most amazing ways. You can, you know, um, just run around, or you can build um, castles or chicken factories and stuff like this. We showed, and this was a number of years ago, that this correlates fairly well with um, standard personality measures. It also correlates well with measures of life motivations and so on, which sort of leads you to the question, why don't we have a dating site that looks at your Minecraft profile? And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Are you getting at a place where our data, our personal data ecosystem might be used to better inform and customize our experiences elsewhere. So let's say I go to, you know, maybe... I mean, yeah, when you put it that way, it sounds sort of trivial, right? <laughs> I, I get, well, I guess. It, well, it's a, it, it's a big bite, though. It's a big bite, ain't it? I mean, that's a lot of different yeah. sources of data. How is Facebook going to know what to put in my feed because I like to build castles in Minecraft? You know, Minecraft, for, for people who are listening right now, Minecraft is a... Very popular video game. You can Google Minecraft just the way it sounds and you can learn it. Julian's taking this stuff for granted because he lives in this world. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you're saying, could we, could we leverage sort of our experiences in different virtual spaces that might correlate to preferences and personality and then transfer those to more personalized experiences doing other things? Maybe Netflix would be able to update based on what I buy on Amazon. I mean, I'm making this up. I don't think they're ever going to trade data, but who knows, right? What you're talking about is a cloud of info about us that, is, as it turns out, is informative for other preferences and could be used to continually inform other preferences around us. You're, you're painting a bit of this future. Am I hearing you right? Yes, yes, definitely. And of course, like people are, in many cases, not going to want to do this. And in other cases, so there's, there's a lot of tug of wars that's going to be had between between different kinds of privacy and data ownership. And I mean, I honestly, if I made a prediction for this, what, what this was going to look like in 10 years, I would be wrong. So I'm not yeah, going to make it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's going to be very interesting. But it's clearly there. And, you know, you play a game. The sort of insidious thing about playing a game is that you don't think you're telling anyone anything about yourself. If you're like on a social media website and you comment on a post, like, you know. It's pretty oh, obvious that you made a political yeah, statement, yeah, right, by doing yeah, that or, or exactly, something about exactly. your personality. Yeah. Right, right. But if you play Assassin's Creed and decide that you're going to um, 
trade those uh, wolf furs instead of running to assassinate that guy, then it's less obvious that you're actually re- you, you're telling someone something about yourself. And in fact, you're telling people a lot because you're playing play a game. You're like, it's a very high frequency input of yourself into the machine. Yeah. Into a machine that's basically all it's doing is processing your input. So it's like right for the taking. So, yeah. <laughs> so I, I guess this kind of brings us to our next question here, Julian, which is around where this is all taking us. Just like you said, you can't just say, oh, this is a guess. But if you, if you, uh, you know, you asked me ardently, hey, Dan, you know, 20 years out, roughly speaking, as we more and more things are virtual, what do you think a day in the life is going to be like? You know, I, I've got some stuff that I would, I would lean on a little bit and I could be wrong, but I, I've got some, I've got some hypotheses I feel okay about saying. I imagine you do too. I think the hard part for people is saying, well, you know, Life is getting more virtual. That just means I'm ordering more stuff from Amazon instead of going to stores. And it means I'm on my, my phone to like order flowers for my wife instead of something else. It's, and that's not very transformative. What we're talking about here is a world where just life is more virtual. Me and you are living much more in virtual worlds than we did you know, 15 years ago in terms of all the areas of our lives that are getting handled through these darn devices, especially in coronavirus, all day, every day, no exceptions, almost everything I do in my life. So what is the next phase of this? I think most people aren't thinking about. They're just saying, jeepers, I'm too too much time on my laptop. But it's more than that. When you, Julian, you stretch forward, not just in gaming, but just the virtualization of kind of human experience, human desires, etc. Where do you see us, you know, a couple decades out, if you were to imagine the kinds of things people will be doing, the kinds of virtual experiences that will be normal. What are your thoughts there? So, so, so I'm going to be in various like game-like interactions all the time. So um, me, because I am susceptible to games as people, <laughs> people are. And not to gambling. For some reason, I've never been drawn to gambling at all. I remember like going to Las Vegas and like sitting down at a table and trying to gamble. I was just like, this is boring. But I am on the other hand, I really like games a whole lot. I don't know why it is like that, but that, that's how it is. So, you know, I'm going to be participating in things. And there's going to be people who walk next to me. Maybe people, um, maybe I will be playing games with people I've passed the day if I still take the subway down to Brooklyn every day. But right now I'm hoping I can take the subway down to Brooklyn um, soon again. And uh, maybe I will be playing games against them, maybe synchronous, maybe asynchronous. Um, they will be sort of um, and be... Uh, be there. I mean, of course, if they are sort of um, make them make themselves available for this, I will also, and this would be a way of reaching out and meeting people in various ways. Yeah. I will also be reacting to people's various small incentives. So, for example, now maybe like you know, a super crowded part of New York is a less good example for this, um, or maybe it's not because people are going to want me to modify how I move around physically in the world based on. For example, based on, for example, things they want to sell to me, like advertising, but also perhaps the information they want to get out of me. So basically, maybe we have like a really, really high granularity, real-time monitoring of the conditions of the sidewalks. And, you know, no one has walked in this particular place at some point. So basically, I'm getting a discrete little error. Like basically, if I'm in a gateway, going to walk from J Street Station to the uh, entrance of 370 J Street then I could take this tiny, tiny detour and sort of, you know, help people collect data, help some some sort of algorithmic entity collect data that, that might sort of, you know, deposit itself as some kind of credits that can be used for something else. Maybe when I myself want this data, because we are going to be able to see so many, see so many more things. 
So, I mean, I guess people have seen, people have heard of Microsoft Flight Simulator, the most recent version of it that came out um, a week ago or something. Uh, right now, there's a horrible um, uh, hurricane going on down the Gulf Coast, and people are flying over it inside the game because the game uses real-time weather data um, and real-time maps, and you can actually sort of um, do a kind of disaster tourism to fly into an actually ongoing hurricane, but inside the game. Whoa, that's so intense. It, it is. That's it is. so intense. I had no idea. That is absolutely intense. You can fly like a little biplane, like, like you can go down into the hurricane. and Right. Wow. Right. And get, get, get blown away. Yes, yeah. I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. Get eviscerated. Wow. So, 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 so it's these sort of kind of things because we might want all kinds of like real time information. Um, I mean, I don't know if you ever had the. Um, uh, I mean, I live on the 16th floor and I have a super nice balcony. And I don't know if you have had experience of googling the current weather instead of actually opening the balcony door. And and it's like, oh, it's nice. I'll open the balcony door then. Um, uh, and this is like. It's sort of natural. I think we're going to want all of this like physical information for things we might want to plan or so on. So we're all going to depend on this like shared sort of panopticon of our shared world. Now the question is how how long how far will this stretch, and how will this affect those things we do when we're not going out into in, into the virtual world or into the physical world? Because that's that's of course like um, something that we we, we look at the virtual future pe- people. People's first thought go into like, ah, you just sit indoors in a in a sofa all day with a VR headset on, and you don't actually move, and you sort of, you know, at the end of the day, you go to the bathroom, and that's it. I mean, for some people, some days are going to be like this. For some people, some days are already like that. I don't think that I would be that kind of person um, personally, but I think it will just like merge the physical movement, intervention movement very much. I, I suspect if you could, if there's one extreme where you're never in a virtual space and another where you are there full time, more people are going to be in the latter than in the former 20 years from now than today. That that feels almost certain. But what you're getting at is it's not self-evident that laying on a couch, having potato chips piped into your mouth or something is like, and now by that, that's, I'm, I'm going along with your yeah, exaggeration, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Um, it is necessarily... Let me sort of poke and prod a couple things here for you and just kind of see where you, where you want to take stuff. So with just VR and, you know, maybe haptics in some level, who knows when that's going to kick in? I have no idea, but it all seems kind of paltry at this point, although interesting. It would seem as though more things would be productively done there. In other words, right now, there are jobs like, you know, so all the salespeople of the world were like, oh, I could never sell on Zoom or whatever. And now they're all having to sell on Zoom, okay? And then they're still selling stuff and it is what it is. So of course, maybe when we're allowed to go outside, those that can shake hands and buy somebody a, a Jack Daniels are still gonna perform better, right? That may be the case. But but I think there will be increasing norms where buying books on Amazon was for weirdos at some point. And then it was like for weirdos if you didn't. Sales, I think, often will be kind of the same. I think the same trade will happen. And I think that same trade will happen in a, in a thousand, thousand areas where you're weird if you do it. Then it's like, I get it, like people do it. Then you're weird if you do it in the physical space. And so I think a lot of those are going to happen. You're talking about going down to the J Street station 20 years from now. I'm sort of sitting here like, man, do you really need like a shared whiteboard and like a physical building with like AC and all the energy running and stuff like like do you, do you really think that that'll be the case like academia 
will be an, an in physical presence thing. I mean, I think I will be because I like it. But I mean, there's another sort of why did we move to shared offices in not an organization I was in, but many other organizations moved in? Was well, a cost saving measure. And of course, getting rid of your offices is a cost saving measure. You know, even if doing things virtually isn't even as efficient and as good as doing it like in person, people are going to do it because even if it's 90% or 80% of it is efficient, it could be a cost saving measure. So, 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 so we move into this. I think, yeah, it's going to be like, a privilege or something to be able to do things physically. And, you know, I'm happy if I keep having that. Great for me. A lot of other people are not going to be. And some people are going to enjoy it. There's a huge variation in psychological profiles. This is also something that we're sort of, you know, we're learning from studying people's uh, game playing behavior, how huge that variation is in what people prefer to do. And there really are a lot of people are going to do, they're going to do this virtually. I think the people who want to do this virtually are not going to want to replicate the sort of physical world setups we have. I agree. I agree. Why would you? It's broken. The physical world is broken. Yeah, Yeah, right. Yeah. So what we're doing right now is like we're replicating having a chat over coffee somewhere. So that's not how people are going to do it. They're probably going to be people who are going to who who don't care about seeing people in the physical world are also probably not going to want to care about doing things synchronously. There's this thought about VR. When people think about VR, even people who have thought a lot about VR, and they tend to get back to like, how can we make an ever more faithful replica of reality? Yeah, I don't, um, I don't like that. I don't like that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's like it seems like you know, it's inept. It's it's like at the beginning of every medium, you know, you start by mimicking mimicking something else, and then that doesn't, then then that's not what it was supposed to be. Like you know. You know, Roland, in early 80s, um, Roland did a series of small synthesizers. They meant that their plan, the use case for these, it were like, like singer-songwriters who traveled around and only with themselves and the guitar, and they would sing the songs, and they would have this bass synthesizer playing the bass line and the drum synthesizer playing the drums. And it was like a joke because it didn't sound good at all. It was like really stiff and electronic and weird. And then other people found these synthesizers and basically... We realized how beautifully weird they sounded and made, you know, completely new styles of music. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I love that analogy. That That is indefinite. That's, that's totally what's going to happen in VR, right? So, so, so VR in terms of like, hey, let's make a replica of a cafe where we can go in and sit down and sort of... Uh, silly, yeah, silly. People who want to do that would go to a cafe. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, I suspect everything has a better version. So let's imagine I want to learn Spanish. Okay, I can go to a classroom with another 30 people and I can learn Spanish. Or I can enter some VR environment where maybe I'm not in Spain. Maybe I'm like somewhere else that's like interesting for me. Like, I don't know, the Amazon jungle or something. Like whatever's going to stimulate me and keep me engaged. The backgrounds are programmatically generated to calibrate to like what's going to keep my attention. And and then I have a teacher who maybe is like, you know, has hominid features because that's what's going to align with my brain because I have a lot of neurons to recognize faces just like you do because you and me done got monkey brains my friend and so <laughs> and so I'm going to I'm going to be looking at things that are going to resonate right but but it's going to be it's the tone of voice or the pace of voice or the way that the teaching is done might be really well tailored and tuned to sort of like what I already know what I don't know it's going to have a lot more knowledge than random teacher x about sort of where I am in my learning and that this new medium will be ubiquitously more efficient, eventually, ubiquitously more efficient at getting me pr- proficient in a language than any human ever could. And once that threshold is crossed, 
gee, if you don't go back. Now, you talked about academia. I'm going to end with this. I want to hear your thoughts. But you talk about academia. Well, I want to go in and you know, have a whiteboard and drink coffee in person with people. My thought is whatever jollies you're getting out of that, whatever utils you're extracting from that, there will be better means and modes of social stuff that you like, maybe even better means and modes of idea sharing that you like than in the whiteboard physical space. There will be some new virtual world where the jollies, well, I want to be in person because, and then you create a list and then someone crushes that list virtually better than you ever could get in the in the physical world. How are you going to go back? That's my thought. My thought is people are just going to create a list and then crush them. What we're seeing again and again is that like we diversify. As humans, we diversify in what we do. I mean, we have like in like division of labor, like if you look at the number of different job roles there is in the world, it just keeps growing. And I haven't done the math, but probably exponential pace. Um, and the number of different things you can do. I tend to be of the was it Kevin Kelly has this great book, the um, What Technology Wants? Um, it is it, really great to recommend it. At, oh, at, okay. some, at, at some point early on, he talks about like you know how basically no technology from the 1800s has ever completely gone away. You can actually find it. There are catalogs where you can buy the most obscure things. Not many people use it, but some people have an interest or need it for some special purpose they yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful the best vr setup for learning spanish is not going to look like spain it's going to be something very very much more information rich you know we look at a computer desktop now and you heard the word desktop if we're still using the metaphor of a desktop that's obviously not um, what's going on and it's extremely information rich if i had if there was as much information on my desk that was readily accessible as it is on a computer screen, well, not right now because I'm looking at your face, nothing more with that, but, you know, in general, with so many tabs open and so many documents open, it's like, you know, it would look extremely cluttered, but it works because we have a way of organizing a computer desktop. So, yeah, if we're going to actually use VR, we need to, what it actually gives us is a way of, like, using all our visual field and we can use it for something very, very much more informative. If we're going to use it for um, for for learning, yeah, for a, for a specific outcome, right? Yeah, I think you were asking about academia, right? Well, I, I basically said, you know, you were like, well, I'd like to go in there, and then you also yeah. brought the point. Well, Dan, you know, some people are going to want to go in, and some people aren't. My suspicion is that as that splintering happens, in other words, oh, there's a million new permutations, Dan. Well, yeah. most of those million are going to be virtual, and my suspicion is as the permutations evolve more and more people will pick the more rich virtual over the analog physical for anything, academic networking, you know, finding lovers, learning languages, whatever the case may be, almost anything that we do today. Now, you may disagree yeah. with that, but... I think it's also a matter of the content production costs. Um, <laughs> okay, so, interesting, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, have an, you have a good perspective on this, right? Because you actually know yeah, this work. I, 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 yeah. I mean, an online course, shitloads of work, you know, and this is, there is a lot of stuff you can do online. And I think... I'm in a great position because I'm in a good university where we get to focus on teaching things that we're actually doing research on. I'm teaching a class on AI for games that, you know, honestly, not that many people in the world could teach because it's a very specialized um, experience. I'm also teaching a general purpose AI class. That general purpose AI class could be replaced with something that is sort of much more mass market and a much tailor-made sort of educational experience, which could be delivered in a completely virtual format. And it might be done much better than what I'm doing right now with the general AI class. But that the economies of that is going to mean that you're going to have need many thousand people to take the class. 
Whereas my very specialized thing was like connecting to the research I'm doing right now. Yeah, you know, that one is probably still going to be better when you... Yes, okay, I, I get what you mean. Yeah, so yet some things are going to be more programmatically generatable, preference tailored to Steve, Jane, Jimmy, Raghav, whoever, um, because there's enough data being been drunk in to, to be able to, to run that. But some topics, we're still going to need the expert for pretty substantial time until we reach like AGI or something, right? So, Which is another, you know. Yeah, that's its own topic. That's its, that's its own <laughs> podcast. So, so okay. So, so that's interesting. So, yeah, you're, you're suspecting that, yes, the more niche the worlds and experiences and knowledge within them are, the more they're going to be still locked to people. Yeah. In, in, in then you may think like, you know, okay, so, but most people are only going to do the mass market stuff. Most people are not going to do the niche stuff. Yes and no. I mean, everybody's going to be, the mass market stuff is going to go like further and further along in, 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 in the educational path. But I mean, the proliferation of niches is crazy. Yeah, so like, it is. So like, there's going to be fewer and fewer jobs that are basically like where you are fungible, where you're interchangeable. Supermarket checkout. I mean, everybody knows that this is like, automatable is being automated has been automated for a long time whereas jobs where you do something very specialized which does not mean to be does not mean that it's something super advanced it could be a particular detail on a particular type of bike or whatever that might be these kind of things there's going to be so many more niches and because we have built we've spent so much time building an amazing um searchable information infrastructure called the internet niches are much more um viable well, okay, this sounds like a version of the long tail argument, and maybe it is a version of the long tail argument, but um, which is partly true. But uh, <laughs> so I think there's going to be a role for person in person to person interactions there. But yes, a lot of stuff is going to be, be able to talk not much in a sort of you know adaptive, partially procedurally generated way, um, virtually. Even if I was going to learn AI for gaming from you, and I had to show up to your darn class begrudgingly and and, and listen at that, I'm joking by the way. <laughs> Dan says so mean to his guests, but uh, but no, I would I would take your class for sure. But if I have to show up, even if I have to be there at the same time as you do, I suspect my experience of you might be different than other people, right? If I I put on my goggles, you're like purple orangutan sitting on like a beach ball, rocking back and forth, and the the things that you're saying are turning into images behind you. And maybe that's really going to lock my attention because for some reason the orangutan beach ball thing just does it for me. And, oh, yeah. And yeah for for somebody great. else, you're going to be like a really attractive woman and you're going to have like Mariah Carey's voice and that's yeah. who's going to be teaching and that's going to get the job done for them. Like, do you still think there's going to be permutations at that level? And, and people are going to come up, there's going to be new ways of interacting with the things I'm saying. You know, if I'm saying things and you want to try it out immediately, one thing is like, you know, you immediately put it into your. Python notebook as you're typing, but maybe you can sort of play with, I mean, as people have done for a very long, very long time, many people like taking notes as to hear someone talk because that gives you something to do. And that serves as a way of like arranging your thoughts and sort of saving them away. Immanuel Kant, interestingly enough, was strongly against note-taking. He thought it distracted you from, from, from listening to from listening to a lecture. Um, I'm, I'm split on it. When I take notes, what happens is that I tend to draw lots of things, but that I draw weird things that sort of incorporate um, the lecture somehow. The note-taking activity is something that could, in a virtual space, be you could see it as like what's what is being said, what is being lectured at you is an information input that you can transform in so many ways with and play so many games with, which is it's great. I think I don't know which. 
Someone should invent this. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a startup idea for somebody tuned in. Right as we close out here, Julian, I want to throw one quick thing at you, which is around power, ethical concerns, governance. As we go in more and more into these virtual worlds, presumably, you know, we're already seeing this. Who's got the big market caps, right? I mean, we, we already know what this is. And the Googles and the Facebooks, the world, Facebook bought Oculus for a reason. You know, we can presume whoever is running the show, whoever's universe you operate in to learn Spanish, to meet your next date, maybe they're just a virtual date forever, you never actually meet a person, whatever it is, Whoever, whoever's world you're in, man, there, there's money and power there for sure. There's influence in terms of what people believe. There's ways to drink in data. Like you said, if everything I'm doing learning Spanish, they can suck that data up and not only help other people learn Spanish, but help inform my next Amazon purchase or help inform what I see in my Facebook feed. I'm telling it, you that you really, you really should be learning Turkish instead because we can tell it from you. <laughs> <laughs> so, it seems like there's new new modes of kind of money and power sort of open up there and, and maybe new things we need to think about for governance. I know that this is, you know, you're involved in the IEEE, who's obviously pretty involved in the sort of AI governance early days stuff. We covered some of that with them. But do you, you have any high level thoughts around what we need to bear in mind around power governance regulation as we start to get sucked into universes where more of us are living more and more in these spaces? The thing I keep thinking is that how can anyone possibly attempt to solve this at the national level? It's like an uncontainable problem. And we have no, right now we're in an age of like moving swiftly backward on international cooperation and international governance, which is, um, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's regrettable in many ways. Um, but I mean, how can we, can we can't do this at a national level? It's impossible. How can you sort of, Unless you sort of cut up the internet, but like, but that's like that's such happening a, right now. Yeah, that's happening right now, and yeah, I, I feel like banging my head into a wall a lot when, when wow. I read these things. Okay, so, so for for you, this would have to involve international yeah. governance, yeah. but yeah, I, but it also I, feels intractable to even try to do that. So yeah. where do you land? Yeah. So whereas I'm thinking is that right now we're gonna succeed. We, we we're gonna move swiftly along with no government. That's, that's what's going to happen, just practically. And because if you're like, you know, it's, it's some kind of tragedy of, of the commons or something, if you're the only one who, who um, tries to sort of come up with some governance, and uh, then you're at a disadvantage. Yep. And yeah. So no, nothing, nothing really firm there right now. For you, it just seems like in the near term, we're probably going to have to cope with not having it. Maybe at some point, you had talked about data ownership as being talked about. Do you think yeah. that that conversation will mature? As I start becoming a massive set of exhaust of virtual information in a virtual environment that could be used in a million permutations of ways, do you eventually see some sort of protective rights, privacy stuff emerging? Or even then, are you just banging your head against a wall? Or do you see some hope there, if we even need hope? So Ted Nelson, so basically he created a sketch, and this was back in, I think, the 70s, for an internet, for, for Project Sanadu. Oh, he founded Project Sanadu in 1960, and he basically created a sketch for um, something like the internet, the complete information infrastructure that would contain, like, you know, um, data protections, intellectual property rights, everything built into the very protocols. So it was all like, you know, all there from the beginning. Um, he never built it, and he didn't really work well with others, I heard. So basically, it never happened. 
Um, why am I bringing this up? I'm thinking of bringing this up because like, it's not like the ideas are not out there. There are lots of good ideas, but um, the power dynamics are such that it's probably not going to happen easily, and it gets harder the more other ways of handling data are entrenched. So I'm, I'm a pessimist on governance. Ah, okay, so that this idea that we'll all have some control over the data that we spit off and how all the various corporations that might have access to it, sell it, leverage it, might be manageable, that, that those means of what that could do and be are going to proliferate so quickly that we may just have to buckle up for a world where regulation just can never catch up. Who knows Who knows if that's going to take us to perverse places where we, we just do whatever Amazon wants, for example. Yeah, I mean, or like you basically... Basically, part of Apple's game right now is at least appearing as giving you more control over your data. And I think in some in some ways it's true, but you're paying a premium for it. That's a kind of interesting power struggle. Um, I would prefer there would be better mechanisms for like giving all of us some input in it, but I don't see them coming. Yeah, not there yet. Well, I know that's not exactly your area of focus. You're the, the gaming and the AI guy. That's your take in this interview series. But, you know, interesting to note that the gaming AI guy really hasn't seen that much he's all that excited about in terms of the regulation and data side. So uh, that should yeah. be a little hint for those of you that are more on the philosophical regulation side. Julian, I know that's all we have for time, but thanks so much for being able to join us on the show. Well, it's been a blast. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So that's all for this episode of the AI Futures series here on the AI and Business Podcast. We have four more episodes to go. So if you're interested in the kind of world we're building when artificial intelligence becomes much more popular and powerful 10 years, 20 years from now, then be sure to stay tuned. The focus of this series is on the future of the human experience. And our next episode next Saturday is focused on the future of privacy and security as AI becomes much more powerful in the years ahead. And as people live more and more in virtual worlds, what, what does the future of privacy hold for us. We cover that next Saturday in the next episode in this series. Otherwise, coming up next week, we have more episodes on our normal trajectory of AI strategy and AI use cases. We've got a great AI and banking use case coming out on Wednesday. And we're also going to be talking about expanding and landing with AI projects in the enterprise. What does it look like to take a pilot project and really move it to deployment? We're talking about that on Tuesday. And that episode is going to be a ton of fun as well. So make sure to stay tuned. I look forward to catching you here on the next episode of the AI and Business Podcast.